Listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. With this episode, we continue our focus on how to embed sustainability in upgrades to heritage buildings. Before we hear from today's guest, I'd like to congratulate the three winners of our book prize draw in episode 36, each of whom will receive a copy of Designing for the Climate Emergency by Sophie Pelsmakers et al. The winners are Aisha Holmes, a Part 2 Architectural Assistant at Hull Black Douglas Architects in County Antrim, Northern Ireland, James Flaus, a TU Delft student currently working at Caruso Sinjin, and Patricia Delag, an Architectural Assistant at Studio Shaw in London. Amongst those of you who wrote in, I was delighted to discover we have a listener in Toronto, but sadly, RIBA Publishing cannot send books abroad for us. And now, let's hear from today's guest. So I felt that we needed a pattern book with various elements broken down and details that could be followed to make it easy to understand the concepts of how we can adapt for climate emergency. Our guest today is Chris Proctor of Proctor Real Architects, a small Islington-based practice which Chris co-founded with Fernando Real in 1995. The practice is perhaps best known for its award-winning Slice House, a concrete and steel house built in 2005 in Porto Alegre, Brazil, where Fernando is from. Subsequent work has been a mix of London house extensions, public realm work, and several passive house residential projects in Vermont, USA, where Chris is from. An early adopter, Chris did his passive house training back in 2011 at the BRE on one of the UK's first passive house courses. Today we are talking to Chris about an ambitious climate emergency toolkit for conservation areas he has authored on behalf of ACAN's existing buildings group. The report, which runs to 80 pages and more, is a labor of love. It is focused on the cross street area of Islington, where Chris has lived and worked for more than 20 years as a case study. Chris shared the toolkit with me when we met in Birmingham at the Retrofit Reimagined Festival last summer, and I've been keen to get him on the podcast ever since. Chris, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you for asking me to be on this. Tell us about the toolkit and what prompted you to develop it. The toolkit was a project of several different things we were looking at in the existing buildings group in at ACAN. This was something that arose because Hackney, London Borough of Hackney, had just designated a new conservation area, Brownswood Conservation Area, in 2020. And we thought as a group we, we might want to respond to that and if this new designation was actually addressing climate emergency. 
And we found that it really wasn't. It was, it was really just addressing heritage. I guess I should back up and say that conservation areas are designated and mapped and then heritage is listed and protected, some bits of heritage within that. But the newer way is to do a full appraisal with a building audit where you look at negative, neutral, positive and listed buildings. So you, you analyze the, the entire conservation area by this method. So you understand there may be negative buildings that have potential to be, to be made better within it. And, and Hackney had done that, clearly identified and clearly uh, did, did a quite exten extensive appraisal, but there wasn't anything about adaption for climate change. So what are the specific things that you've inserted here that address climate change? Well, the way I started to think about this was that the country has gone through several phases of development of conservation areas. They were first started in 1967 with an act of parliament that set up the concept of protected neighborhoods rather than just protected buildings. This conservation area here in Islington was, was very interesting because it was, it was in 1970, so it was three years after the introduction of the, of the legislation. So it was an early one. And the, the conservation areas in Islington really have the basic um, mapping. Uh, this conservation area, Cross Street um, number 13, is, is only five pages. The newer ones, certainly in, um, in Hackley, this new one had, you know, 20 to 100 page appraisal reports where they really analyze the neighborhood much more clearly. We wanted to see how one could actually take that beyond that and say if, if a homeowner wants to develop their building, they need to understand what is possible. Can they change their windows, upgrade from single to double? What are the types of windows that would be recommended? Can they do a roof extension? Can they do a rear extension? How do you do that in a listed or a heritage a constrained building. And that's what we thought was missing in, in the newest guidance. So I've taken the distinction of saying first generation, second generation, third generation. First is a designation and, and the basic mapping. Second is an appraisal, which very few councils have actually done. Uh, and then the final one now is how we can look at elements within buildings in conservation and give clear examples of what could be good to retrofit. What's been the process of producing the toolkit and who have you worked with on this? We started um, with a small group of about seven people in existing buildings. And what we were doing was analysing the new Brownswood conservation area. So what we did is we went through, went through it, we made notes, we put questions forward. And then we were thinking, OK, this is one inner London urban conservation area, but across the UK, there are more than 10,000 conservation areas. And I think it's quite varied neighborhood locality to locality. So we, we, were, we were thinking we could look at several and we, as members, what we did is we looked at conservation areas around the country and pulled, and pulled the guidance up to see what was happening in different places. Um, so that was the start of just finding out and investigating. And then we decided it would be too big to do analysis of, of several. So we decided to just to do one, and it was the one where I live and work, which was a small one, it was only 173 buildings. 
So it was manageable for us to audit that number of buildings in a detailed way. The toolkit says on the front that it's for England. Are you envisaging versions for Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland? Or would people in those different nations make their own versions? Well, this is England because we were really looking specifically with uh, guidance from historic England. Each country has different policy and we felt at this time we couldn't devote our resource to more than the one. As the largest, it would mean that, you know, we'd have the most impact. We would expect maybe people could adapt this or look at how they could do it in their own areas. So I want to come back to this focus on on the retrofit angle and the upgrading. How did you unpick that? Can you give some examples of how you inserted that thrust into the audit that you did? We gathered a lot of information from councils and their plans, appraisal diagrams and mapping. Several in London have had more resource. London Borough of Kensington and Chelsea and London Borough of Westminster have updated almost all of their conservation areas to you know, full appraisal documents of 100 pages. Westminster was one of the early ones to start doing this in 2008, you know, well ahead of the guidance in 2019 that came out, making this a standard way of working. So I think in practice, councils with a lot of heritage in them started to do this because they had to. And what was interesting was that Westminster had done started to do element analysis. They had a mapping of all the roofs. So they were looking at, at roofs that had original roofs, roofs that had additions, and roofs that were potential roofs that could be extended. Camden in Hatton Gardens Conservation Area also was looking at elements, streetscape elements, uh, looking at building history. So rather than just positive negative mapping, they were starting to go into detailed mapping of aspects of the buildings rather than just the whole building. So that gave us some ideas that really this could be done in a more detailed way. That's why I thought it made sense to look at what would you change and extend in the house to make it more climate ready. Certainly windows is a key thing. How your roof is insulated. You know, if we look at components of buildings, we look at the roofs, we look at the walls, we look at the floor. So those basic areas of a building So I recently obtained listed building consent for a low-energy retrofit project in Pembrokeshire, which is currently on site and came across many of the issues that you raise in the toolkit. Uh, More specific policy guidance would have been really helpful at planning to manage these issues. The toolkit talks about various issues, for example, compactness, projecting elements and form factor. How could those be addressed in conservation guidance? Well, what I'm looking at in conservation guidance is the tool that planners and homeowners can use to assess what they should do. I think we don't have time for individual appraisal back and forth between planning and design stages. We really need pattern books. And looking at extensions, my my focus here is really what the planning and conservation could allow to be changed in a building. If someone wants to, to add or extend, that's a case where they need to also do it in a climate sensitive way. So it's really good when people are extending then, then to think about form factor, because you extend a linear extension, which has a lot of surface area that you need to deal with in cold bridges, or do you do something that's a more compact form? So the the pattern guidance is this, is decided to think what is the best way to extend that works as a climate mitigation method as well. 
I think windows and projecting chimneys, all of these things add problems. And that we've lived in traditional buildings that had parapets, chimneys, party walls, but new construction and passive house is looking at continuous insulation wrapping. So you have a continuous warm blanket around the building space. But if you have a lot of projecting elements, that breaks that and it makes it very hard to have a warm space without cold bridges and also without moisture problems. Where you have cold penetrations in historic solid brick buildings, you have problems with damp migration through. So it makes a lot of sense to do external wall insulation that wraps from the roof down a wall. Now, this is controversial because it, it changes the facade. But on the rear, if you're, especially if you're doing some sort of extension to the back, that makes sense. You can do that. On the front, in the public realm, where you have nice facades that you don't want to change, you can't do that, so you would insulate internally. So you have a split approach in a building where you have internal wall insulation um, on the front facade, you have a well-insulated roof, and then you wrap that roof insulation from the top down the back wall as external insulation. And th those ways of thinking when we're extending and, and changing a building give people a much better idea of how to do it. So I felt that we needed a pattern book with various elements broken down and details that could be followed to make it easy to understand the concepts of, of how we can adapt for climate emergency. Solar roofs in particular are often a bugbear for planners and PV panels are a flashpoint in many conservation discussions. You show various examples in Islington where they've been hidden. What's your view on solar PV or solar thermal on roofs where they're visible? Right. I think that we need to address this because we can't always hide them. They can't always be at the rear in a private realm. Some buildings are oriented so that the, the south face of the roof would be facing the public realm, which is the road. So my approach, and I've been speaking with people at Power Up North London, who have been doing community solar in several boroughs in North London, and we should look at these as new architectural extensions to buildings like awnings have been on shop fronts. Other elements that have been added, maybe one can consider Brie Soleil and awnings to, to shade windows, porches, other, other elements over time that have been added. It's another new addition to a building and it can also, as well as generate energy, can also shade the roof so that you don't have the roof heating up if you have another layer on top of it. And if these, these things are, are actually removable, so a solar array is not something that has to damage a historic building, it, it can be removed in the future because it's an added element that is spaced above the roof generally. Or one could also look at roof tiles, solar tiles, you know, solar slates that would be sympathetic as well. That's a more expensive way, but if you're, if you're really doing a completely new extension, you could do that built into the roof. But the, the idea is that we should accept these. If we're going to accept these, we should look at how we design them neatly as a grid or as a pattern that makes sense with the building. If you have a visible roof and you have a solar array, it should look like it's been designed to fit there purposely. There are examples um, near me. St. Mary's Church is a 1700 church. Part of it was destroyed, but the main frontage is 1753, I think. And it has a, a huge solar array on the roof, which isn't completely visible, but there are some places where you can see it. 
The exterior location for heat pumps is another issue. In Italy, heritage buildings use through-the-wall type of units where the actual unit system is inside the property with a couple of ducts outside. Will the uh, toolkit provide some guidance on heat pumps? I haven't done that yet. I, I've, I've been really thinking about sort of major structural changes to buildings. Heat pumps can usually be fitted on the on the roof, hidden so they're not visible, or on the rear. I don't think they're as difficult as people make out. As you mentioned, the Italian system, I've used that in conservation myself in my own practice, where we've had this unit that's slightly thicker than maybe it's 200 thick, uh, like a radiator under a window, and then it just has the ducting out. And, and these are made by a British company. They're used in hotels a lot. Um, so it, you have to have one per room. And they're about a thousand pounds each. So if you have a small flat, a few of those would be cheaper than a bigger heat pump system. And there's nothing outside, it's just the vent. The problem with heat pumps is that the market hasn't evolved enough. And there are new ideas about heat pumps that haven't come out. Heat pumps aren't small enough yet for flats. They've been designed for bigger houses. And I think we need small heat pump systems. I, I've been involved with the Letty retrofit guide, the first one, and also that informed me about how much of our houses were in conservation. Non-heritage or architecturally constrained, we have a 25% that is, and that's where we need to think about these things a bit more. Letty is also producing a second guide, retrofit guide, coming out soon, which has a lot of information about how to do it and the practicalities and they've put in a section on heat pumps and they have a whole new idea of, of a heat pump that would be small enough to replace your current boiler as a phase change box that would store the energy generated. We need to have smaller systems and I, I think we just need to push the market to develop them. I want to come back to the issue of windows, which is always so, so sensitive when retrofitting heritage buildings. What windows do you think have the scope to be changed and, and how? Yes, this is very controversial. And this is where um, I have you know, a sticking point with conservation architects or with Historic England and such, because the policy has been not to replace single glaze sash. And I've wanted to question that. And I, my, my approach was to really look with this audit of this small cross street conservation area and really count the numbers and look at what's here to try to analyze this in a, in a, in a clearer way. And I, what I found, I, you know, I, I was counting all the buildings, checking all of the windows that, that appeared. There are very few original windows. And the whole approach is that you don't touch original windows, which I agree. I think if you have a, an original Georgian window sash, you shouldn't change it. You really should just use a secondary glazing behind it. But in this conservation area, there are very few. And one way to tell is that Georgian windows never used to have, they didn't have horns. So if you see six over six sash with horns, then that's generally a replaced window at some point. Now, when were they replaced? One could also think in London, certainly, and in some other major British cities, during World War II, there was so much damage that I'm sure windows were replaced after World War II. But there was a period in Victorian times when a lot of windows were replaced. And we had the six over six sash from Georgian. And then in the mid-1800s, you had a better glazing and, and a new, new type of glass 
float glass that could be larger rather than the small panes. So the modern approach was to get one over one or two over two sash with larger pieces of glass. And if you look at some Georgian areas, you see they've been replaced with a Victorian window. So the Victorian windows had this larger glass panes and had horns. And so people may have thought that they're modernizing their building at that point and that they had better view. Um, also, maybe the, the paint or the wood had deteriorated and so they replaced it with the current state of art of, of window design at the time, which was larger panels. They didn't consider that it wasn't matching the six over six. They just changed it. And that was before conservation. Now we're prevented from saying that we want to have a double or a triple glazed window because of conservation practice and law. Back then, they could just swap it out. So in Islington, on the six Georgian terraces, in, in this conservation area, the only listed buildings are the Georgian. All the Georgians are listed. Uh, the Victorians aren't. But the Georgian terraces, I, I counted windows and found many Victorian or later replacement sash. So my approach was to say, if we're finding these replaced windows, are they significant? And the term significance is a key term in heritage. If, if a change has happened over time, is it significant? If it's significant, you would leave it. And my, my approach is to say that upgrading of windows to patterns that weren't the original pattern are not significant. So this document is to be a bit provocative to say, if we're really looking at windows, where do we draw lines here? Uh, and I've tried to be quite logical in saying if it's not original, then there's more scope to replace it, even in listed buildings, and that it would improve. And I think any pattern book or any guide like this has to start with what do you have in your locality? Do you have small medieval lead glass windows, which again, then you wouldn't touch? Do you have casement windows? Do you have sash windows? Do you have modern windows? What are the types of windows? Certainly if you have PVC, that's a problem. And so I identified four types. I identified the Georgian six over six classical window sash, as we know it. I identified something in between, I called it decorative Victorian, where you have divided lights, but maybe in different patterns. And then I found the next one to be a functional Victorian, where you have a one over one pane, larger panes, quite functional, less decorative. And the last one I found was a modern casement, like the criddle metal windows from the, the 1920s and 30s. There are a few of those around. So those are the four types. And then each type, you can do different things with them. And I'm, I'm trying to be very technical in this guide to give people an understanding of what you can do to replace them. And I think this should be done borough by borough, locality by locality, depending on the type of buildings you have. This is building a pattern book of details and perhaps manufacturers so that people know very quickly, this is what you can do or not do. And this will speed up retrofit. Without this, we're going we're gonna to run into big problems because if we just look at Islington as a whole, Islington as a whole has about 4,000 planning applications a year. If we were to retrofit all of our heritage buildings in conservation areas, that all the planning applications for, for the next nine years would add another 4,000 planning applications a year. So we would double the amount of planning application work from four to 8,000 just to deal with, let's say, window replacements on all of the 
conservation areas. It's a huge amount of planning work that cannot be covered now because we've had shortages of staff, we've had budget cuts. We have to have a quicker way with a pattern book or permitted development. We won't be able to retrofit these at scale um, with the amount of work that's required for going through conservation and planning. There has to be a different way. That sets up more clearly what you need to do in each circumstance rather than having to kind of make these arguments afresh for each application. So sort of streamlining the process. Exactly. Why do things again and again when you can do it once? On our Pembrokeshire retrofit, the only kind of double glazing that CADU and the conservation officer would accept is the kind that you call slim profile sash windows, where the double glaze unit stops at each glazing bar. The local joiners, though, refused to make this as they thought they're really unreliable. And even the big firm in England, they would only guarantee them for five years. So planners can say, I want that one, but without any real technical understanding necessarily. And certainly they wouldn't take any responsibility for things that go wrong. So how would a toolkit or pattern book deal with these issues of of risk and liability that comes with them? That is something I tried to outline because there's been a debate about a slim profile. I've defined two terms. Slim profile is the general name for the small panes that sit within the existing wood glazing bars. And you could do this sometimes in in existing sash. You could just replace the single with this double or you could make new ones up. And because they have the wood through, they actually look very close to the original window. That has been something that that conservation has gotten behind, and that was something prevalent, you know, really more 10 years ago. There were quite a few examples of this that conservation areas were starting to develop. But there is an issue that because they're trying to make them fit in these very narrow glazing bars, that when you have the spacer of the double glass, they've narrowed the spacer down and the sealant. When you're pushing the boundary of that, you're asking for trouble in a way. So I've tried to address this by looking at what are the alternatives to this. So I've cautioned using these, and this is something that the head of conservation Islington was concerned about, that people talk about double glazing and these slim profile ones sound and and look good, but over time there may be an issue with them. You may be able to put more sealant around when you bed them in, Rather than putty, you may be able to use a more sophisticated sealant that will prevent this from occurring. But the other alternative is to use what I call slim cavity, where you have the same 14 mil thickness, the same thin double glazed unit, but you you do it across the whole sash itself and then you plant the, the smaller bars on top. The good thing about that is that you can get very narrow 16 mil bars that can match exactly heritage. The current practice, I think, generally is about 24 bars so that you have enough space to bed two, two panes into this wood bar. But if you want to match an exact historic a sash with, with very narrow ones, you can't do it. So if you do it where you plant them on, you can actually make it match the, the fineness of it. But there is, there is a trade-off because it doesn't go all the way through. So maybe you have the spacer between the glass. So when you look through it on the diagonal, maybe it, it looks like it goes through. But I think this is where we have to have a trade-off in things. It, it is a much better window. It has a, a better insulation U-value because you don't have these pieces going all the way through. You have the one single pane of glass on the whole sash rather than six broken up. So that is a better alternative. Another alternative is evacuated glass, where you have a thin vacuum 
between. And there are some good examples of that happening. And that gets gets below building regs. The, the problem is the building regs are getting quite tough and they're standard for new fabric improvements to existing buildings. You, you have to meet the building regs. So outside conservation areas, you would have to meet a quite high standard. It has to be a good double glaze or even triple glaze to meet the current building regs 2021. Now, conservation areas are exempt from that. So in a conservation area, when you're replacing a window, you don't have to meet that. But I think one should. I mean, I think why should we not put the best technology if you're spending money on the upgrade? We should go as far as we can with it. The reason I focus on windows is windows are less disruptive than other areas. Perhaps loft insulation is, is an easy first move to do something up in a loft if you have the space to get in there to insulate. But windows do not involve the disruption of internal wall insulation where you would have to move out perhaps, you have to redo cornices and trim architrave. I think windows are also quite quick to, to, to put in. And my feeling is that if you put a good double glazed window in, you can replace it in the same area of the traditional one. If you put secondary glazing, you're also disrupting what may be inside panels on the sides of the windows. You you have to rebuild the trim inside if you put in secondary glazing in. And and then my further question about secondary glazing, because that secondary glazing is what everyone in conservation has been used to and recommends. If you want to make your house less drafty, put a secondary window in. But the problem with secondary windows is you can get double reflections that are showing up because of the gap. You can see a double reflection through. You also have trouble if you really want to open and vent windows. You have to open two sash and it's harder to clean them because you've got this layering between them. And the, other, the final question is most secondary glazing panels are aluminium. And if we look at embodied carbon, what is the embodied carbon in manufacturing aluminium versus a wood replacement? And I think that's not discussed because there's a very high uh, carbon cost of aluminium. Any kind, any kind of metal is going to be a higher cost than wood. I'm in favor of secondary glazing where you have an original window and you need to protect it. But I think it's better if you don't have original windows, you can do much more with a good state-of-the-art modern double glazed or even triple glazed. What we did in our, um, our our project in Pembrokeshire, because we weren't allowed to have this slim cavity glazing, we used a, a solution that Bob Pruitt, who had been a, a guest on episode 30 of, of our podcast, had, had developed, of removing the shutter boxes, fitting secondary glazing, and then putting the shutter boxes back so the edges of the secondary glazing are hidden behind the timber. Yeah, that was a kind of a way of retaining the appearance of the kind of all, all the stuff inside anyway. I guess there's yeah, there's kind of positives and, and negatives of uh, of it really depending on the the circumstances. Yes, I could address that. Uh, the trouble with that is that you you need to add thickness to that when you're adding a secondary glazing. Then the the shutter box probably has to move out into the room slightly. Yeah, yeah, about sort of seventy five hundred mil to get right. The space so you to are kind of changing. Get your arm into, yeah, it does. It does change. So that bit, is a yeah. change. The other change is you've got a reflective surface. So on the inside looking 
especially at night when you have lights on, you, you see a reflective glass over the whole thing and you don't see the divisions. You don't see the fact that uh, the, the heritage that really makes them special is the small, delicate bars because the reflection on the secondary glazing obscures that a bit. But I will also add that Rob Pruitt was also a reviewer on this toolkit. He helped me immensely to review the windows and gave me some good tips on it. Technically, I've, I've gone to about 17 people in the industry, engineers from Letty, various architects, ECD, and they've, they've helped with some of the detailing to get it right. When technical stuff gets into planning policy, it seems like it can be really tricky. One example is the London plan promoted burning gas for district heat, heating systems for years until Clara Bagnell George came along and set up Letty to get the policy changed. How much can planning deal with these kinds of technical risks and how much needs to be dealt with in another way, maybe in an update to the building regs? or Yes, and the way that's best deal- dealt with is a supplementary planning guidance document. And most councils have, or they've started or thought about, having supplementary documents for conservation or for retrofit. So they they may produce a document for the entire borough on how building typology by building typology could be done technically. So it may not be written into each conservation area, but it may be a general technical guide for the the borough. And these can be shared across boroughs, which also is quite good if, if there's regional similarities. So Islington has one that's very dated, although it's only writ- was written in 2017. It has detailing and discussion that doesn't meet the current 2021 building reg. So they have committed to changing that. As part of their net zero move, they are about to do this af- after the local plan is finally enacted. And their idea is to take different typologies of Victorian, a Georgian, and say if you were to, to meet climate retrofit, what, what could you do technically? So my aim in this toolkit was to try to give them maybe where we think they could add these details. Again, I just want to say we need pattern books. We need ways of doing it because even as an architect, you know, we struggle. How, how do we do that? How do we detail that? What, what windows should we use? We don't have time for every practice to do this research. We need to have guidance that people can pick up and use very quickly. Yeah, well, clearly not every conservation area is going to have the expertise or resources to develop this kind of detailed guidance that you're proposing for Cross Street, nor, nor would it really be appropriate. There was an edge debate on this topic of reconciling heritage and nest zero, and engineer Chris Joffe, who's an ex-director of Building Retrofit for Arab Globally, he suggested a, a kind of collaborative approach of local people with an input from a wide range of professionals developing targeted local guidance on an area-by-area basis, including construction details to streamline the consent process. You know, exactly what you're saying, homeowners could implement agreed modifications without, without permission. We'll put a link in the show notes to that debate, but is this a realistic way forward? It is, it is a big step, but dealing with this entire problem is a big, is a big massive task for us all to do. And I, I think if we don't start somehow, we, it'll just be harder as we go forward. 
there is a group of London councils that have split off some of the net zero development work so that each council doesn't have to do it. Islington is focused on district heating because Islington has some good good district heating. And there are two boroughs, Enfield, I think it's Enfield and Harrogate, that are doing retrofit of housing. And so the London Council plan is, has given each council a particular responsibility to develop in detail more guidance for net zero. And these shared ways of working, we have to move that way. And, and then the other thing is we need to have more open source. There's, there's too much behind firewalls and too many details and things that are protected. I'm doing this as something that will be freely distributable. I could say that these are my details that I've been developing things in my office. You know, it's my, it's it's what I have that why people may hire me. But we we need to start sharing details and ideas. It's the only way we'll we'll achieve these things. And I think working together in in groups that make sense, public private together, local citizens could be involved in suggesting how they would like their neighborhoods to evolve forward and I think there will be more movement that way. So what are the next steps for the toolkit? When's it being released? It will be released in a few weeks. It just has a few final reviews. It's been a big task. I've been working on this for two years but I think it's at the point now where it can be released. It is perhaps too long. It's 150 pages with the appendices. Hopefully you can dip in and out of it. You may be interested in the windows or the or shop front um, details and look at that. Hopefully it's a resource that can be used in different ways and, and councils and, and architects, uh, conservation people could use different pieces of it. So it will be released through ACAN, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it'll be released on the ACAN website as a downloadable PDF. Chris, before we wrap up, tell us a little bit about what else you have in the pipeline, both here and in America. The main one you sort of alluded to was in Vermont, in the United States, where I'm from. There, there's a partnership with a town there that has some empty sites that they want to develop, and they're very keen to show state-of-the-art, well-insulated houses. Also, the idea is to be local, to have housing that is on the edge of villages where you can walk into town, less reliance on the car. Vermont is a beautiful rural state where people would get their 10 acres of land and build their little dream house up on the mountain. But they're realizing that they should really have development on the edges of towns. Towns should be the key where things happen. And I'm working with some friends as developers to develop these as as trial. So we've got a five houses designed that we're going to start in phases to do something next year. So finally, I can't resist asking you about Slice House in Porto Alegre, which is a a real tour de force in concrete and steel on a very narrow site. If you were designing it today, what would you do differently? You mentioned concrete and then everybody's, they all get nervous about the embodied energy in, in concrete. The, the problem in Brazil is that there are termites. And so the problem is you cannot build with wood. Um, even on that house that had steel kitchen counter, steel handrails, steel stairs, even on that house, we built a few things out of wood. The wardrobe cupboards, the cupboard at the entrance door, cloak cupboard, those have been infested with termites. And so the wood after um, 10 years had to be replaced. So 
if I was to do it again, I don't know if I would use concrete, but I would use block of some sort. We used concrete because we wanted a thin structure because the site was three and a half meters wide. So every thickness of the wall, every amount of thickness of the wall was important. If I was to change it and do brick or block, then I would probably have other issues with the thickness of it because, and the structure wouldn't be as strong. I know that I would have liked to have done, but the technology wasn't there in Brazil. I would have liked to double glazed it. It's all single glazed. So to do things differently, I would love to have done more insulation and have done double glazing. But again, it's only extreme summer and, and a few weeks in the winter where you really need to worry about it. Most, a lot of the year, you can live indoors and outdoors there. Thanks, Chris. Great conversation. Join us in a fortnight for our next episode and hear from Morwenna Slade, Historic England's Head of Historic Building Climate Change Adaptation. Morwenna will share with us her national perspective on upgrading our heritage stock. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts, where you can also catch up with all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please subscribe and do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us. Thanks. Thanks.